We pick it up in verse 10. Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and he put it at his head and he lay down in that place to sleep. Then he dreamed. And behold, the ladder was set up on the earth and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending upon it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You, you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I've done what I've spoken to you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. Then Jacob rose early in the morning, took the stone which he had put at his head, and he set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of that city had been loosed previously. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and keep me in this way, then I'm going, and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on, so that I come back to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I've set it as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give you a tenth to you. This is the story of Jacob's ladder. Again, we just, we've just seen this pattern for us as we're going through Genesis we get New Testament interpretation to shed light on this text to understand it in the context of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. In the gospel of John, in the very first chapter, as Jesus is being introduced to the nation, the people, the followers of John the Baptist had begun to follow him. And Peter, Andrew's brother, and in this context of John chapter 1, the very tail end of it, there's a man named Nathaniel. And they had come to him and said, hey, could this be the Messiah that we're following? Speaking of Jesus Christ. So Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and, he, and Jesus said to Nathanael, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you when you're under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you, I saw you know the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of God. Thus, Jesus, in his ministry, connects his earthly ministry to the vision of Jacob's ladder. He connects the two. And we've been saying this, especially because we taught Colossians earlier this year, that in the Old Testament, everything in the Old Testament is pointing forward to Christ. One way or another, directly or indirectly, every book, every oracle, everything is a type, a prophecy, or a picture, or a promise concerning Jesus Christ. In this story that we read tonight in Genesis, when Jacob is sleeping and he has his dream, and he's transcending dimensions, in this dream... He is between dimensions. He is alive in time, space, and matter in his generation. 
But at the same time, eternity, which is another dimension, God's throne room, his glory, God comes to him in a dream. Now, that's not that unusual. We see in the book of Daniel, God coming in dreams. We see in the first couple chapters of Matthew, many dreams where God is speaking to the wise men, to Joseph, what to do, when to do it, how to do it. There is a transition somehow in some way that we don't completely understand between when we're asleep and when we awake where we can be open to or receive from that dimension. In fact, the great promise concerning Jesus Christ at the end of the ages, your young men and old men will dream dreams of the kingdom. So biblically, we know that God can speak through dreams because it's, it's happened many times in the Bible, including right here in this text tonight. A footnote on that or a parenthetical thought is there's three types of dreams. The dreams that you had because of bad pizza, okay, late at night. Remember, you wake up with a headache at like four in the morning too, right? Okay, so that's one type of dream, just you being you and just the way your computer works and whatever. There can be dreams that are demonic dreams because the devil has access in that same realm and there are definitely dreams that are demonic and even can be physical, like the physical pressure on your chest or even a choking type of thing that can be physical, demonic dreams. And then there are spiritual dreams where God can speak to you from a dream and he can speak to you about something I remember in Virginia Beach, we were going to do an outreach on this particular day with some other churches, and I was being pressured heavily to do it, and I just didn't have a piece about it, and the Lord gave me a dream. And I dreamed of the very place we are going to do the outreach, the Virginia Beach Pavilion, and I dreamed it was raining like in the flood, that it was a, a deluge, just a total downpour, and that this event happened, everything was flooded, and nobody came. I thought, well, that's a rather interesting dream. And I was like, well, Lord, I don't want to make too much of a dream. I don't want it to be a dream of fear or something, but what's the word of the Lord? And I was like, word of the Lord was, Joey, it's going to pour rain, and I'm not in this event. Don't do it. So when I called the people and said, I'm telling you right now, I had a dream. I know, I know. When people say they have a dream, I understand. So believe me, I'm with you. If you came to me and said, you had a dream, I'm with you. Okay, so I understand where you're at. But I had a dream where it poured rain and nobody came. And then I prayed about it, and the Lord told me that's what's going to happen and not to be a part of it. That day it rained six inches in Virginia Beach. And everywhere in Virginia Beach was flooded. There was hundreds of accidents, and I guess nobody came. Because I didn't go, but I don't know. But as I heard, nobody came. I was like, wow, I read that dream right. You might have in your lifetime, on one hand, two, maximum probably, that you've had dreams where God would speak to you. It's not like it happens all that often. But still, there's something about a dream where God might meet you there. But in the Old Testament, that's really where God did a lot of meeting with a lot of people, like Daniel. In the New Testament... The Holy Spirit meets us when we're cognitively alert, as we are here tonight, to speak to us and move us and point us and direct us toward the things of the kingdom and the things of God. Which brings me back to the whole thing about Colossians and things that are a type of things to come. And here, this Jacob's ladder is a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. Because Jacob had this incredible vision. It moved him. He said, God is awesome. It's like the foundation for the song, Our God is an Awesome God, right? So he says, Awesome. God is awesome. And He's moved by it. He builds a pillar. We'll come back to this in a moment in application before the night's done. But, like, he just, it's incredible what happened. God spoke to him. God moved upon him. And he had this divine encounter with the Lord. But with Nathaniel in John chapter 1, it's the upgrade. We've been talking about upgrades in the book of Genesis. Because this is God meeting him in a dream, revealing himself to, in the dream. To this point, we don't have any record of Jacob having a relationship with God. We know that Jacob wanted the birthright, and we know that Jacob wanted the blessing. But we don't ever see Jacob in a relationship with God building altars or praying or calling out to the Lord. 
He's just Jacob, and he's about Jacob's business. And we know enough from Jacob later on in his life, he's always got a plan, and he's always trying to stay in front of you like a chessboard with business. With Laban, with Esau, he's got a plan. We know that God will change his name from Jacob, heel grabber, to Israel, prince of God, and from him will come the 12 tribes of Israel and the seed, the promised seed, that will be a blessing to Israel and the nations. Jesus Christ will come to the tribe of Judah, the fourth born, and from the tribe of Judah through the house of David under Jesse. He didn't know that this night. He's just running because his brother wants to kill him. He's running from what he knows. Someone wants to kill me. And he's running to what he doesn't know. Uh, Laban's house. Uncle Laban. I'm going to go see Uncle Laban. You know, it's this way. Hang a left past Damascus and you'll find Uncle Laban up there somewhere. Okay. That's all he knows. And yet God meets them there. But Jesus, when he's beginning his ministry, and he says that to Nathaniel, he said, you get, a, you, get, you get fired up because I told you I saw you behind a fig tree? Let me tell you something. You're going to see angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man, the Son of God. It's an upgrade. Black and white, Jacob, his experience. Prelude of things to come. Shadow of things to come. Jesus Christ, the beginning of his ministry. Think what John says before that. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He said no one's ever seen God at any time but the only begotten of the Father, the Son, Jesus Christ. He has declared him to us. The law of God came through Moses in 1500 B.C., but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That's the summary of John's gospel. And then here's where it begins in John chapter 1. What Jesus is saying is what Jacob could only encounter through a dream, you can encounter through me. Because no one has ascended, but the Son of God, he has descended. And Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And it is God reaching down to us through Jesus Christ. So as we think about this text the rest of the night, of this experience for Jacob in the house of God, Bethel, formerly Luz, if you will, when we think about this experience and think about the application, we have to take it past the black and white, and we've got to take it to the color. We've got to take it from the prototype and the prelude to, or the preamble, to the real thing. Because the real thing here is Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry and everything he did to show us the heart of God the Father. Jacob had one dream one night this way. We have a whole life to live by being born again through faith in Jesus Christ. As many as received him, he gave them the right to become the children of God. And everyone being Christ are a new creation. We have the second birth. The Spirit of God moved in the Old Testament. He hovered on the face of the waters. He came upon Gideon. He came upon David. He did various things at various times. But for us, when we open our heart to Christ, he comes in us and we become the temple of God. But when we think about this, what we learn from the story of Jacob is God meets us where we're at. And God is gracious because there's nothing in Jacob that's seeking the Lord right here. There's nothing about Jacob that makes him righteous or pursuing the Lord He really is a testimony of amazing grace. So far, what we know about him is he grabbed his brother's heel coming out of the womb, which, you know, he's an infant, so can't give too much there. But he did get the name heel grabber. And it seemed appropriate because he stole the birthright from his brother. He outsmarted his brother for the birthright. He strived for the blessings, which is commendable. And by the way, in all that he did, stealing the birthright and stealing the blessings, in both those things, God never rebukes him. In the context of the previous chapters, God never rebukes him. 
And here, when God reveals himself to him, he doesn't rebuke him for that either. You know, that's the amazing grace. See, the, the gospel of grace is always taking us forward. It's not about the mistakes we made in the tent with mom deceiving dad and Esau wanting to kill me and stealing the birthrights from when we were teenagers in high school. And then now we're grown men and we're fighting over the state and I want to run the state in the trust. And so I'm going to get the blessings because that's the way it works in that culture at that time. And I'm going for it. It's not superstition. It's like the real deal. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to usurp my brother. And to his credit, Jacob wanted the things that were promised through grandfather Abraham and through his dad, Isaac, he wanted them. Esau's like, eh, it's a birthright. What's it matter to me? I'm starving to death. I want to go to In-N-Out. Give me the money and you can have the birthright. That's what it's like. He sold his birthright for an In-N-Out combo, a bowl of beans. It gives us perspective and context, like a teenager. And then later on when he's midlife, he's like, hey, you know, dad's going to give me everything. I'm the firstborn. I'm going to run the state, run the trust and all that. Rebecca comes to Jacob and says, no way Esau is running the trust in the estate of this family. And there is no way, because God told me the older will serve the younger. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to deceive your dad. And that's what they did. So to his credit, he wanted the blessings, but, and he never got reproved by the Lord for what he did. But there's no indication of a relationship with the Lord. And we're told that there's none that seeks after the Lord, no, not one. And we're told that we love him because he first loved us. While we're yet enemies, Christ died for us, we're told in the New Testament. This is amazing grace. In other words, my key point here in the overall context is there's nothing in Jacob that says, hey, I'm seeking spiritual things. I'm going to go to this mountaintop, have an experience with God. I just want to draw near to the Lord. No, he's running for his life. And he's just on his journey like a lot of us were when Christ revealed himself to us. But he's at that flashpoint, that apex, where in time, space, and matter, God of the universe, over all these billions of stars and galaxies, Becomes very personal with the hairs on our head. And that's where he is at. I love to hear people's testimonies when they talk about how the Lord brought them to himself. We all have different stories. That's how it is. This story reminds us that in the fullness of the New Testament and the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ came to seek and to save that which is lost. And he descends so we can ascend. And he sends the angels to confirm as ministers to those who are being saved to guide us on our journey. He confirms that he's personal in our lives. To the baker, he's the bread of life, and so on and so forth. And to the surfer, he's the one that calms the winds and the seas and makes them stop. He's whatever he needs to be for that person to reveal himself to them. There's such a mystery to it, but it's so beautiful because it is the gospel of grace. While we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we love him because he first loved us. And the good news that we have as the Church of Jesus Christ in 2019, in every year until he's done with this world as we understand this dispensation and the way it is right now, until the kingdom comes in full glory. It's a glorious gospel of grace. And here, with the grandson of the father of faith, we see that grace. God met him right there. Jacob did not earn this revelation. Jacob did not earn this visitation. God initiated this. Because God comes to seeking to save that which is lost. And this is the prelude, the black and white version. Jesus Christ, John 1, is the full color surround sound version. Not a dream, but the real deal. God on earth in time, space, and matter. Glory veiled. 
So he meets us where we're at, and he meets us in the fullness of the glory. But he initiates it, and it's important that we really lay hold of that because he initiated it for me, he initiates it for you, and initiates it for the people we love and care about and the people maybe we don't love and care about. And before we move on this, move on from this first point of God initiating the revelation, God came to bless him and reveal himself to him. It is worth noting, just a little bit of clarity before we move on, that God was working before Jacob was born, moving toward Jacob. Because God says, I am the God of Abraham, your father, and Isaac. In other words, before you were born, when your mom was there in her father's house with her brother Laban, before your dad was born, when your grandfather sent Eliezer to, to go get your mother for his son, your, your mother's father-in-law, I was the God of Abraham. That's very encouraging because we say Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's what the text says here. I am the God of Abraham, your father, and Isaac. And this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to bless the nations. Well, I'm going to make a nation come from you. You don't have a wife. So you're way behind Abraham's eight ball when I made these promises to Abraham. Because Abraham had a wife that couldn't have children. When I promised him a son, you don't even have a wife. You don't know what tomorrow's bringing for you. But from you, a nation's going to come. The same promise I made Abraham, your grandfather, and I made Isaac, your dad. I'm making you. I'm the God of Abraham, your father, and Isaac. And from you, a nation's going to come from your seed, your offspring, a nation. In fact, Jacob doesn't know it yet, but he's going to have 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. In the next 20 years, he's going to have 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. And the rest is Jewish history, Israelite history. But that promise was there before he was ever conceived. Think about this. I'm the God of Abraham, your father, and Isaac. I was working before you were born. And I'm going to be working after you're gone. Because an entire nation is going to come from you. It'll be 400 plus years before the nation comes from him. He will see the beginning of that nation because he will die in Egypt when they're about 70. But it'll be centuries before those descendants of his 12 sons come out of Egypt with the Exodus and Moses. It'll be centuries. But they will come into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. And they will carry the bones of Joseph, his son, into that promised land four centuries later. I am the God of Abraham, your father. And Isaac, and from you in the future, when you're gone, he's the same yesterday, today, because God's talking to him today in the dream. But he's talking to him yesterday. But in the future, a nation's going to come from you, and in your seed, all nations will be blessed. Jesus Christ the Messiah is coming through you, and all nations will be blessed. So it reminds us, when God initiates what he wants to do in our life, he was working before we were born. In and through our parents, our jobs, our school, our teachers. Think of all the people that sowed the gospel into your life before you were even saved and before you were even born. There were things that God was doing to prepare the way for you to know him before you came onto planet Earth, before you were one cell in your mother's womb that had all the blueprint for who you are today in that DNA. 
And what I really like about what God says to him here, initiating this relationship and the contact and the revelation, he said, I'm going to be with you. I'm I'm going to go with you and keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. You ever feel like in your walk with the Lord, you're part of something so much bigger than just you? Oh, it's because you are. You're so special. It's like that giant thousand-piece puzzle that's so beautiful. We're a piece of the puzzle. There's a place for all of us in the kingdom and church history in our timeline and the kingdom. But God was working before we came. God's working while we're here. And we don't have to worry when we're gone. He'll keep working. And this story reminds us of that. He comes to us and knows the hairs on our head. Oh, you're excited because I said I saw you behind the fig tree? I'm telling you, angels ascending and descending. You don't even know what's coming. Your kingdom come, your will be done. It's here. You're going to see, the, the blind are going to see, the lame are going to walk, the dead are going to be raised. It's here. What a generation for Nathaniel and the subsequent generations that we're now a part of, the glorious gospel in the church age. But he meets us where we're at, and he was working before we met him. He's working personally with us while we do meet him, and he's working on a bigger picture when we're long gone of what our life was all about. The fruit of our life should not end when we step into eternity. It's so much bigger than just your dream where God meets you. I am the God of Abraham, your father, and Isaac. And I've got a plan so big, it's so much beyond you. And what does God say? As the heavens are above the earth, so are his thoughts and ways above us. What he wants to do through your life, through our lives here at Worship Generation, what he's done through our lives in 2019, what he's still doing in our lives through 2019 as a church family, and what he's going to do in 2020, it's awesome and it's mind-blowing. And it's more than we'll ever know while we're alive in time, space, and matter. All the fruit that we've sown, all that we've sown for 15 years as a church and what was sown before we even began here when we were sowing in a Jeremy Camp and Tim Chaddock and Sarah Yardley and all these people, David Downs and Sean Havler, they're all over the world. They've been in Africa, they're in Italy, they're in England and Tim Chaddock's in London. And man, Tim Chaddock's first preaching was with Worship Generation. His first preaching was with Worship Generation on the tour up in Washington State. We're doing an outreach up there and somebody wanted to have Another outreach, the same night we're doing the outreach. I was at the Greyhound Center in Coeur d'Alene. And he's like, can you send someone uh, to come and preach to us up here like an hour up the way? I'm like, hey, Tim, take this band and go preach there. Leave straight and narrow here. I can't remember who we sent with him, but we sent Tim Chaddock. I was like, well, how did it go? And he goes, I preached the gospel and I gave an invitation and people came forward. Right. You got this. You see, we just keep on sowing, 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 discipling, mentoring, pouring out. But I am the God of Abraham, your father, and Isaac, and this is what I'm doing. It's bigger than you. I've met you where you're at, and I'm personal to you. I will be with you in the way, and I'll bring you back in the way that you're going. It's just wonderful. It's incredible. You got to appreciate Jacob's response. This is a good response for when, because the Lord meets us where we're at. We're often so concerned, like, well, I'm not worthy. I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I have a friend who's praying about, he, he believes maybe he's called to ministry. His wife thinks maybe they're called to ministry, but they're really scared about it. She's not sure what it means to be a pastor's wife. He's not sure if he's really called and he's nervous. It's one thing to be involved in your local church and serving and blessing and helping. It's quite another to say, like, I think I'm called. And he's really nervous about it. I need, I need more education. I need more mentoring. I go, man, I know that one. And what I learned as I stepped out in faith as an intern pastor, is that God just worked right through me, right where I was at, with who I was in that place. That very first day at work at 
at Calvary Vista when the new building was done. And I sat in that office, and Brian gave me four books and said, read these and just be available. And they called me and said, hey, there's a lady here. She's Catholic. She's really mad at her teenage son, and they're looking for someone to uh, arbitrate this situation. I'm like, that's perfect. My mom's Catholic, and I was that teenage son. Send him back. And, I, and I, it was like, oh, my goodness. Like, that's my mom. That's me. That's my mom. That's me. Hey, look. Hey, you stop being such a naughty boy. You know what? He just he needs help. You know, like, he, need, he needs grace and love and mercy. It was crazy. He meets us where we're at. And he met Jacob where he's at. So Jacob wakes up. And he says, whoa, holy moment. God is awesome. Don't you love the New King James translation here, too? I mean, it's like the word awesome. That's one of my favorite words, right? Like God, he literally says, well, God is awesome. God's in this place. Woo. Goosebump, chicken skin, as they say. Got chicken skin right now. God is awesome. Uh, hmm. Well, the dream's gone. I'm still here. Um, well, that rock was my pillow. That's where God met my mind. So let's take the rock, okay? And uh, I got some oil here. I mean, what, what would Grandpa do? What would Grandpa Abraham do? He'd build an altar, of course. What did Grandpa Abraham always do? He always built altars. Okay. I'll build it. You know, this is my altar. What did my dad do? Well, he built altars too. Okay, so uh, I'm going to pour some oil on this. He built an altar and he poured oil on it. He made it a holy moment. God met him where he was at and he realized that God was meeting him where he was at. He realized what was happening here was not something to explain away with pseudo-intellectualism or hyper-emotionalism. He knew in his heart as a created being, he had just had a divine appointment with the creator, which is what my wife knew when she responded to the gospel 32 years ago on this day. She knew it was absolutely true what she heard. In fact, when she heard the gospel preached through Brian Broderson, it all came to clarity, the inability to reconcile her biology class and her physics class at UCSD. My wife is very bright, straight-A college student, as you know. When she went back to school 07, 08, 09, and graduated, hope, straight A's. And everything she's done since then, straight A's. She's brilliant. You guys know that. But when she was in college, and her God was education, because her family's God was education, the biology class would say everything's evolving, and the physics class would say everything's breaking down. And where they get all these hyperboles and these flowery thoughts of these professors. She had one class with a Christian constantly challenging the professor, like, really? So what's the chance of that happening mathematically or compound probability? And she'd be like, oh, my goodness, you know? So, but in her mind, she could not reconcile that it's, things are evolving or decay the law of entropy. It was very simple to her. You can talk to Darwinists, and they'll try and explain it all, and it's like, blah, 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 right? Because he catches the wise in her own craftiness. It's nonsense. But for Jennifer, it's really simple. These two things are not compatible. And when she heard the gospel on December 7th, 1987, it was also clear, of course they're not compatible. It's not true. And that Christian that was standing up in my class challenging the professor all the time, he spoke the truth. This is the truth. And she did the one thing that she could do that night that would be an outward act of her faith and reception to what she heard. She stood up in a room full of teenage surfers. She stood up. Like she, her, the faith went past her pseudo intellectualism and she stood up. There's all these surfers. That's what she did. This is what Jacob did. I believe. Pillar, oil. God is awesome. This is a holy place. That's what he did. Think of all the Harvest Crusades, 30th anniversary of the Harvest Crusade. 
when people hear and they respond, it's so critical that we do respond. Because sometimes we hear and we've had this dream. We've had Jacob's dream. We've had Jesus come to us and say, you think that's special? You're going to see angels ascending and descending. And we've had that moment. And it's so crucial when we have that moment to respond to the gospel. And you have. And it might just be one moment, like my wife on December 7th. It might be a season like me in the spring of 1987 prior to that. But we, we have that moment and we know it's, it's not just spiritual. It's not just supernatural. It's divine. See, because the devil can be spiritual and the devil can be supernatural. But it's divine, and the creator is speaking to the created. And we need to remember that as we shine for the Lord and as we live for the Lord in our communities, in our families, in our neighborhoods, and wherever we go. We need to remember that that Jesus comes to seek and save the lost, and he meets people where they're at. He met Matthew, the tax collector, in the tax booth, and then he met his friends and his co-workers at at their house for dinner. He met them right where they were at. And Matthew did the one thing he needed to do. He responded. Jesus said, follow me, and he did. And this dream established something in Jacob's life with the Lord. And there's one closing thought I want to share on this second point before we pray to wrap up the night. As best as he could, in this moment, he responded in faith. God is awesome. He knew and he recognized that something was happening, and he had responsive action to it from his heart. He actually spoke the one thing he knew. He's like, well, if this is all true, the dream's all true, because the dream's gone. Like, can you imagine when the angels came to the shepherds we were singing about earlier, and they left and they're gone? The shepherd's like, well, we got to go find this kid. Like, you have this moment, it's so profound, and you know God did something, and all of a sudden, it's like it's gone. You're like, wow, did that just happen? And Jacob would have maybe felt that way. But he said, well, if this is really you, and you are the God of my grandfather, Abraham. And my dad, Isaac, here's, here's what I'm going to do. Uh, I, God's awesome in this place. Bethel, you said you'll be with me, so I'm going. And when I come back, I, know that I will know that you were with me. Now, we're going to get that in a couple weeks. I, know, I will know that you were with me. And when that happens and you, keep, you show me that you're going to do what you're going to do, I'm going to give you a tithe. Although this seems almost comical, like God of the universe, like I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, your father. And, and, and Jacob's like, uh, oil, rock. Uh, well, if you do what you say you're going to do, I'm going to tithe. <laughs> really? Like, what is this, big government or something? Like, God's a totalitarian or authoritarian regime. Like, you're going to pay taxes to God. Hey, if you do this, guess what? I'm going to do something really big. I'm going to tithe. I don't think that's really the context. Because God's not interested in a tenth of Jacob. He wants Jacob. Prince of Israel, prince of God, Israel, doesn't mean one-tenth of the living God. Prince of Israel, Prince of God, Israel, the name Israel means Prince of God. Prince of God does not mean one-tenth. It means everything. It's like Jesus saying, unless you deny yourself and pick up your cross, you're not worthy to be my disciple. Prince of God, when you get a name change from heel grabber to Prince of God, it's not about a tithe and a tenth and a tax to some form of government, of religion or men or anything. But what is interesting about this tithe is that Abraham tied the tenth to Melchizedek. Remember that? A few months back? And what's fascinating to me about this is that story, no doubt, would have been passed on to Jacob to know that story. I mean, his dad, his grandfather Abraham took 300 men and they went and whooped five kings up in northern Syria and rescued distant uncle Lot. Abraham, his grandfather was a bad dude. Like, my dad's a bad, my grandfather was a bad dude. Like, he just... He took those five kings, settled on one of those guys, and gave him a beatdown, rescued everybody. And when he came back from the rescue, it was when Melchizedek came and met him, who had no beginning, no ending, 
a king and a priest. And what, well, what did Abraham do with Melchizedek? He gave a tithe. And what did Abraham do? He wouldn't take anything from the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. He wouldn't do business with the carnal and the worldly. And he recognized the spiritual and the divine when it was there with Melchizedek. So in Jacob's religious household training, like Jacob's children's Bible, whatever he had at home, or the scroll, or the verbal traditions, he would have known. So I really believe when he says, I'll give a tithe, I feel like that's, I believe it's very possible and very likely that what he's saying right there is him connecting his faith to the faith of his grandfather Abraham when he gave a tithe to Melchizedek when he had a divine appointment and a divine experience and a supernatural event that's chicken skin, if you will. What did Abraham do? Oh, Grandpa Abraham, what did he do? He, he gave a tithe. Okay, oil on the rock. So if this really is real, when I, I'll give you a tithe. Like, it's a connection. He's connecting his faith and he's speaking a confession of faith that is connected to his grandfather, Abraham. I believe that's what the tithes are. I don't think it's like him saying, like, hey, I'll pay taxes in a toll booth or something. I think what he's really saying is, this is what I know about you in my household and what I've learned. And since you meet me where I'm at, it's like he's saying the one thing he can say. It's like when you're sharing Christ with people and they know a little bit about this, a little bit of that. And they're like, oh, we went to church on Easter and the priest did this or that. Right? Like, they're going to say whatever they know that's spiritual that connects to what you're sharing. That's why we need to meet people where they're at, just like Jesus meets us where we're at. I love this story. Because Jacob didn't earn it. God met him there, and he just says, God is awesome. Oil on the rock. I'm going to tithe, and you're working before me. You're working through me directly. You're going to be with me in the way I go. You're going to bring me back to this land, and you'll be creating a nation from me when I'm long gone. Jesus truly is the same yesterday, today, and forever. For his church, historically, and this is our timeline, 2019. And who he was in the preamble, the prelude with Jacob, is who he is when he came to Nathaniel and said, oh, you're going to see, you're going to see it going down now. If you think you've seen something, you're going to really see something. And the message of the church is the legacy of Christ coming, the good news of Christmas, Easter, the gospel message. And that good news is God has been working before us. He wants to work through us. He'll be working after us. And it's just a joy and a privilege to know him, to love him, to reciprocate and respond to that love, and to be all in as best we can to fulfill the purposes of our life in the grand scheme of the universe. Because you really do count and you really do matter. And everyone you look at when you leave these doors, they count too and they matter. Every single human soul on this planet matters. Every single one of them. No matter how scarred that person might be physically from the fall of sin and how it affects the human race, no matter how scarred they might be from the effects of sin morally, physically, decisions and how they affected them, they are, we are, humanity is created in the image of God for his glory and for his purposes. So I encourage you in application of this text tonight, let God meet you where you're at. Let him take you forward where he wants you to go. Know that he's with you in the journey. Be all in and just realize he, he, he's, he's for people. And he wants to, he's for you and he wants to work through you in special ways. And so as you seal the fruit on 2019, think about what he's done for you. And also think about and really make time to think about what he wants to do through you. Because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he is not done with his church, this planet, or you.